This is a section where Paul here is in so many places in his letters to the churches, individual churches and individual cities like Church of the Good Shepherd in Bloomington, where Paul is calling the Christians to live in humility with each other and to consider each other better than one another and to put upon themselves humility of mind and to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ, to be united. And in the middle of this exhortation, he holds up the example of Jesus Christ's humiliation for them to follow. In other words, today you and I have an example to follow when we humble ourselves. We don't follow a God who was unwilling to take on our infirmities. We do not follow a God who uh, was unwilling to take on flesh, even the flesh of a humble man, even the death of that flesh. I have, over the years, worked for a lot of men, and one man stands out as the man that I loved the dearest. He was a deacon in his Roman Catholic church. Actually, no, I don't think he was a deacon. I think he was... uh, well, what we'd call a lector, but um, Irish to the core, Boston, Catholic Irish. And a dear, dear brother. Um, one of the reasons I loved him, and in fact, the thing that caused me to fall in love with him, and I worked for him all the years I, I, I was at seminary, was despite being about my age, um, he would always be zealous to do the hardest work himself. So he had these little flunkies college, you know, and, 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 and seminary students, you know, young with backs that hadn't been sprung yet. But when it came to taking the roto out of the back of the station wagon, when a roto is heavy, if you haven't lifted one, it's one of those four machines. And when it came to taking it out of the back of the station wagon, he would be there first to lift it. Everything about this man was like that. And you think about God lowering himself to take on our infirmities and our flesh. And this is the example that the Apostle Paul holds up to the Christians, you know, preening ourselves and putting on our Easter finest and, you know, saying that you're here to serve me, not me to serve you. And making sure we get the right place in our chairs, making sure we get to the head of the line, making sure that you recognize that the elders are the boss, you know, and that I'm the boss of you, woman. I'm the husband. Everything that we do, everything that we see in our children while they come out of the womb right away. You know, we can see our, our firstborn looking at our secondborn a little bit. Well, who is this usurper to the throne towards their baby brother? And this is how we are. So Paul's pleading with the Christians to be united and to love one another and to consider others better than themselves. And he holds up the example of Jesus Christ. And we read, beginning with verse 3, he's, he's, he's making the, the lesson. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another. By the way, wasn't it sweet that Cynthia said, Me? And isn't that really a very sweet act of humility? <laughs> that she acknowledged that she wants to be king. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But you understand the reason I said that, because many of us will not admit that we are proud. 
We understand that. We see no pride in ourselves. And that's how proud we are. <laughs> Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here's the example being held out. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me, please. Father God, we come to you as your flock, and we tip our heads back as little baby birds, and we say, Father, feed us from your word. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Father, send forth your word. Heal us. Rebuke us. Correct us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Father, may your Son, Jesus Christ, have all preeminence in this place and in our hearts. For we ask this for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Now, the first part of the comparison prepares us for the second part of the comparison. In other words, it's the contrast that reveals the truth. The glory is an indication of the humiliation of Christ, and the humiliation of Christ is an indication of the glory of Christ. If we are ever to understand the significance of the resurrection and the glory of Christ, we must understand his humiliation. Jesus Christ, the text tells us, existed in the form of God. It says in verse 6, And the ancient church had great battles over what this meant, that Jesus was God and that Jesus was man. And there were many errors made in the direction of emphasizing his manhood instead of his godhood. Many errors made in the direction of emphasizing his godhood instead of his manhood. The error of the Pentecostal oneness tradition today, which rejects the true uh, three-part divinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, overemphasizing the Godhood of Jesus Christ. And so we confess this morning as Orthodox Christians the words of the Nicene Creed, which says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, and then what? God from God, light from light, True God from true God of one being with the Father. This is our confession as historic, orthodox, biblical Christians 
Jesus was of one being with the Father. He was true God from true God. He dwelt in unapproachable light with his Father in highest heaven. He was incorruptible, but for our sake and for our salvation, he put on corruption. And so in verse 6 we read, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And thinking of grasping, you think of two little children in the living room, and there's a doll or there's a truck, and they're trying to grasp it from each other. And you see the little hand come out, and then the other hand comes out, and then they're screaming. And Jesus did not grasp his equality with God. He held it lightly. He held it lightly. He emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant. Jesus testified about himself, I and the Father are one. Now, anyone that listens to that knows what he's saying. He's not claiming to be an evolved man. I mean, it's so disgusting to use the word of scientific idolatry today. You know, she was fully evolved. You know, it's so disgusting. Jesus was not an evolved man. That's the gospel of the liberal church. That Jesus came to show us what we could be in our finer moments. Let me tell you about my finer moments. You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was staying overnight at our house last night. And is that not why you just laughed? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, yeah, she's giggling. Yeah, that's why. You don't want to see my finer moments. You don't want to see where I'm most evolved. Jesus is not speaking of his uh, progress, of his uh, enlightened state. Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one. And these are not the words of a man who's fully evolved. These are the words of God himself. And yet he did not grasp equality with God. He didn't hang on to it tightly. But he emptied himself, took the form of a bondservant. Now, we hear that, and it sounds like the Messiah. It sounds like Handel. And what we have to realize is a bondservant was really a servant and really in bonds. A bondservant was not something any of you want to be. All right? He had no respect. He had no status among men. He was not self-determined. He was not self-evolved. He was a servant and a slave. He was in bonds. The only begotten Son of God, the Father, did not hold on tightly and grasp his glory, but he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant. How? Well, by being made in the likeness of men. But not just any man. Who was Jesus exactly? Well, Jesus was not a citizen of the United States of America. Having just gone through customs, I know what it means to be a citizen of the United States of America. And any of you that have ever gone out of the country know what it means to go into the line where... You're a citizen, or to go in the line where you're a Bruni, what's what's the sign say? Visitor. And you feel the division as you come into the U.S., don't you? Absolutely. And I, I have an American passport. And let me tell you something, people around the world will die for that. Jesus was not an American citizen. In fact, Jesus did not live in the modern world. Jesus did not have Facebook and he didn't have the Internet. 
He didn't have ESPN. He didn't have brackets. You know how today when we write about the ancient world, you know how the word ancient world or the phrase is always used as a pejorative term? Well, back in the ancient, and, and you know the word always that comes next when the word ancient is used about a world. The next word is always the ancient patriarchal world. Jesus was born into the ancient patriarchal world. And he wasn't born in Athens, and he wasn't born in Rome. Do you understand? But Jesus was born in a disgusting nation that was so harebrained and so cantankerous that the Roman Empire threw its hands up in hopelessness about the Jews. They were the one people group that were allowed to escape the pantheon of gods, to escape the melding that the Roman Empire was supposed to do. And so people, you know, Romans, sophisticated Romans would look at Palestine. They'd say, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, well, that was Palestine. Now, Jesus was not just from Palestine, but Jesus was from the disgusting province of Palestine. He was from Nazareth. He was, he was, he was a funky. He was from Martinsville. He was not from Bloomington. I mean, honestly, people. And he wasn't from Carmel. Jesus was from a humble province of a despised nation, from a humble town, Nazareth, Galilee, the province, Nazareth, the town. Now, again, to show you by contrast, the Apostle Paul, when he was about to be killed down in Palestine, what did the Apostle Paul do? The Apostle Paul was a Jew. What did the Apostle Paul do? Well, the Apostle Paul said, I what? I appeal to Rome. And then there's this very sweet moment where the last become first, isn't there? Because the Roman centurion, I believe, looks at Paul and is flabbergasted that this rabble rouser has citizenship, naturalized citizenship. You know, actually, no, not naturalized uh, what do you call it when you're born? Huh? Native. He's a native. Yeah, yeah. And the guy looks at him with jealousy and says, you know, I don't even have that status. And so Paul is able to send himself to Rome to be tried. He's a citizen. Was Jesus a citizen of the Roman Empire? He wasn't. He couldn't appeal to Rome. He died in Jerusalem. And he did not die in Jerusalem, did he? He didn't. He actually died where? Outside the walls, outside the camp. As soon as Jesus was born, there was an effort on the part of the Roman governor to kill him. The Roman governor ended up bereaving many mothers that day, killing their little babies. But God had protected his son, sent him down to Egypt, gave him a good father, Joseph, who protected him. And so Jesus was born in a stable. He was immediately having to flee for his life and went down to the despised Egypt. And then when we look at his ministry, we see that the way to sum up his ministry is the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. Remember the man that came and said, I want to follow you? And he said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the consequences of following me. 
Do you realize that if you follow me, you will have nothing? You realize that you won't have a place to lay your head. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so we watch the humiliation of Jesus Christ, and we watch the constant opposition, the sarcasm, the, the superciliousness of the academics. They despise him. They absolutely despise him, the academics. They cannot up with which to put him. They can't stand him. Because why? Well, because here Jesus has the people eating out of his hand. And so they accuse him of being a drunk, an alky, remember? A wine-bibber, they call him. They accuse him of being a friend of sinners. And what would that be today? Well, the Vatican has told us that would mean that we'd litter. You understand the Vatican has said that, that, that to, you know, to pollute the earth is now, I believe, a mortal sin. All right. And so they had their sins that Jesus was guilty of, just like today all the sophisticated people have the sins that are important to them. And what are they? Well, they're littering. They're not using your seatbelt. Right. They're like having too many carbon emissions. You know, none of them have. And so Jesus violated these laws, didn't he? Jesus went around healing on the Sabbath. Naughty Jesus. Jesus went around throwing things willy-nilly for the sake of righteousness and truth and justice and principally mercy. But Jesus' mercy never fit into the morality of the powers that be, the sophisticates, the academics, did it? It always went against them, and they were always gnashing their teeth at him. I know what you're going to do. You're going to heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, yeah. You know, if you had an ox fall into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Should this be not a day of mercy? And so he's born into a stable. He has to flee for his life. And all through his ministry, he's humiliated. He doesn't receive the worship of those who claim to be the guardians of his father's religion. And so they come to him, the, the, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they come to him and, and they say to him that they're children of Abraham. What they mean is we're, we, we were baptized in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church or a Presbyterian church in America or we were baptized by Paige Patterson or Al Mohler or I was christened at St. Jude's do you understand? And they hate him. And they say, we are children of Abraham. We've been baptized. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no, no, no. You're not children of Abraham. We have God as our father. You scumbag. How dare you call our pedigree into question? Right? That's what they said to him. And what, how did Jesus respond? Well, Jesus looked at them and he said, no, your father is not God. Your father is the devil. And then did they love him more? They didn't love him more. Now, was Jesus doing this because he'd gotten up in the morning and had a rumbling stomach? In other words, was it just that Jesus had a nasty, negative disposition and was a sourpuss or a cynic to everybody? No, Jesus did this 
because he was obedient to his father. And his father had given him his mandate. And Jesus says over and over again in his life, Scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus' entire life was a living out of the commands he had received as his father. He described his life this way in the Gospel of John. He said that he is doing the work that he saw his father do. Now, anyone who has ever been a father knows what this is about. If you've ever had a son and you've been a father, you know what it means when Jesus says, I'm doing the work that I've seen my father do. We all know what that is. You get out the jack. T- we, had a, we had a wonderful comedy of errors in our driveway a little while ago. It seems like part of the humiliation of getting older is to not even be able to do the things that you used to be able to do well. And one of them, I've never had a problem changing a tire. I've been on countless canoe trips. And then the last one I went on, after never, ever, never flipping in a canoe, ever on a canoe trip, the last one I went on, I did it three times. <laughs> so Taylor and I are going out, and I tell him to change the tire, and he has trouble. So I come out, and I'm an idiot. I go out, and I, I start changing the tire. And number one, it's a light car. And number two, it's on a driveway that has a slope. Well, the first rule of changing tires is find a flat surface. Right? Well, of course, the lug nuts are tight, and they give you this tiny little wrench, you know. So I'm taking my 200 and plus pounds, you know, trying to turn the lug nut, and it's got this tiny little, like, scissors jack thing sitting under the car, right? And you know what happens, right? I'm twisting it, and flop! (laughs) The car goes off the jack and lands on the pavement. So then I jack it up again, and just as I get the tire off the car, the car goes, flop! But this time with the rotor down on the cement, you know. And there Taylor is watching the work of his father. Jesus perfectly did the will of his Father. He did the work he'd seen his Father do. And the work of God is the work of holiness and truth and justice and mercy. And it is the work that Jesus did. And so doing the work of his Father meant that Jesus, day after day after day after day after day, was humiliated. And this was not something that Jesus had happened to him as as a surprise. This was something that Jesus fully knew the consequences of every single one of his actions. One of my favorites is when the woman washes his feet with her hair and her tears. You remember that? Do you think Jesus didn't know who that woman was? Do you think Jesus didn't know that she had known many men and was a symbol of disgusting dirtiness to femininity in that area? And how intimate do you think it is for hair to be touching your feet and tears? How intimate is that? You remember what the Pharisee thought? You remember that? Remember it says that he thought he would not be letting her do that if he knew what kind of woman she was. So Jesus not just submitted 
to her humble ministration. But Jesus submitted himself to knowing what they were thinking of him as he humbled himself, and he kept his mouth shut. Now, you know what I would have done. I would have, if she washed my feet, I would have humiliated her by saying, I know what kind of woman you are. Don't you think I don't know what kind of woman she is? I know what kind, but this pleases God. And don't you dare look down on her. And what am I doing? I'm humiliating her to justify myself, right? You understand that? Jesus zipped it. And then he said, Simon, Simon, let me ask you something. Remember that? And who loved more, Simon? Who loved more, Simon? Jesus, when he was in the upper room, as uh, I believe it was Jody pointed out so clearly in the Good Friday service, Jesus knew. He had known for a long time the character and the condition of Judas' heart. Jesus knew who Judas was. Jesus chose him as one of his twelve. Jesus lived with that man year after year. Jesus gave over the kitty, the pocketbook to Judas to handle, knowing he was a thief. You see how Jesus humbles himself. You see how Jesus lets people hit him and despise him. You know, when Jesus, Judas was stealing from the kitty, he wasn't sitting there thinking, this is why Jesus gave me the kitty. Judas actually thought he was pulling one over Jesus on Jesus, didn't he? Judas thought Jesus was too stupid to know what he was doing. And so Jesus kept his mouth shut. And he knew the hell that Judas was creating for himself. And he loved Judas. Don't make any mistake about it. Then in the upper room, he's serving people. And what does he do? Remember how Jody talked about him... Huh? Oh, it was Joseph. Well, who cares? <laughs> I've sat under two sermons recently. Can't keep them separate. Anyhow, you remember how Jesus reached over and dipped? You, you, you might think of it being fondue and French bread or something. And he dipped it in the sauce. And then he gave it to, Ju- to Judas. And he said, Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And then Peter was ready to bust them all up with the sword. You remember that? He took off the ear of one of the soldiers. Remember that? And Jesus said, come on, dude. Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels? Imagine. (laughs) Can you imagine what would have happened? if God had decided that he would not allow his son to go through the crucifixion. you imagine how the father would have dealt with those men at that time? And so Jesus put the ear back on, and then they let him bind him. Jesus knew they would spit on him, that he knew that they would strip him. He knew they would cast lots for his garments. He knew they would mock him. He knew that. He knew what the words would be. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. If he trusts in God, 
Where is his God? And he would know, he would know that, this, that the criminals on each side of him would join in. He knew that he would be stripped. He knew he would be taken outside of the city. Indignity added to indignity by not being killed inside the city, but rather outside the city, at the crossroads, at a place that's very public. And what did Jesus do? Jesus did the will of his Father. He did the will of his Father. Now, there has to be an application of his humiliation. And what is the application to us of his humiliation? If Jesus lived a life like this, why would we think today that we do not have a cross to bear? You know, of all the things I have heard Christians say, and I praise God, I haven't heard this often from the people that I serve as a shepherd, but of all the things I hear people write and and hear them say, you know the thing that, that I've never been able to get my brain around? It's when people say, why me? It just fries me. Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. And Christians in the most decadent day, in the most decadent nation, in the richest time, in the most convenient, most technological time in all of history are walking around in America today going, why me? It boggles my mind. Here's an, here's an answer. Why not me? Can you imagine if Jesus had come to this earth and every step his father demanded he take, he said, why me? Well, he would have had a right to ask it. Nothing comes to you. Nothing but from the hand of your father. And so the first application is, if you're going to be humiliated, wear it with Pride. Because if you're humiliated as a believer doing the work of the Father, then what? Therefore, come on, God has highly exalted him. The entire world is going to tell you That when you lose your husband and you lose your children, and that when your business fails, and that when people talk about you behind your back, and when everybody snickers when you testify to Christ at your recital, that you are a failure. And Jesus takes on the form of a servant, a bond servant. He goes through his life being humiliated and he finally is lifted up naked on a cross and he breathes his last and then the Bible says, therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow How precious is it to you that every knee will bow before Jesus? You say, oh, it's precious, you know. I came to the garden alone, the dew was filled. You know, it it sounds like a bunny to me, but it must be Jesus. 
You know, we all have our little things that we run through where we think, you know, the right answer is always Jesus. Jesus is precious. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is this. Jesus is that. Jesus is the other thing. You know, Jesus is the answer to every question you have. Doesn't that sound pious? How precious to you is the glory of Jesus Christ? You want to know how you can tell? The way you can tell is by looking at the degree to which you love humiliation. That's it. That's it. There's nothing else. You know how the Bible tells us in John that the way we know whether we love God is by looking at whether we love our brothers. You know that, right? And it says that the man that hates his brother hates God. Because how can you love someone you've never seen? Or how can you love somebody you've never seen if you hate the person sitting next to you in the pew, right? Well, if you want to know whether you love the glory of God, look at your heart and see if you love your own humiliation. You say, oh, no, no, no. It can't possibly be true. Jesus did it all for us. And that sounds real good, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, Jesus did it all for us so that we can, we can go to heaven in bliss. We never, ever have to be a mother. I mean, that's not God's calling for me. I'm called to be a woman. You know, I'm not called to give birth, and if so, once, when I'm 39. God didn't call me to, to work some nasty job I hate to put bread on the table for my wife and children. I had a man tell me this last week that the greatest respect he has for his father is that his father one time took a job and had often moved the family and said to the family, when I take this job and we move, we will not move again until you're done with high school. And then he told me with great honor and respect for his father how about nine months after his father moved to take the job, his father got canned because of cost-saving measures at the company he worked for. And this man said that he will always respect his father because of what happened next. You know what happened next? The father was immediately offered a job back with an increase in salary at the company he'd left to take this job. But it would have required him moving out of the city. And so what did the father do? The father did a huge career change in the middle of his life, and they went for years. As this man said, we did not go to McDonald's and we did not rent movies. And so you think of the humiliation of being a man. You think of going around selling oil additives so that you can put food on the table. You think of the humiliation of taking orders from a man that you despise and acting as if you like it. You think of the humiliation of working with men who despise Jesus Christ and you love him. Do you love the humiliation? You see, what we want to do is we want to come up with humiliations that have a larger purpose. You know, what we want is we want to be Polycarp at, you know, what it was at 84, saying, you know, four score and 80 years or, eight, you know, 80 and four or three, what was it? 80 and seven. 
All right. I have served my Lord. How could I possibly? And kabam, and we're in heaven. That's what we want. We want to be proud until the moment where we die, and then at death be humble, and then be victorious in heaven. Right? So if you think you love the glory of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, who did you humiliate yourself in front of this week to invite them? to participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you? Do you ever put your pride on the line for the sake of the soul of a living man or woman? And this morning, when you saw others lifting their hands in worship, many of you didn't. I didn't look. Why didn't you? Undoubtedly, it was because of biblical principles. And I spit on your biblical principles. I thought about doing this this morning. I thought about getting down on the floor, on my belly, and asking you to do it with me. And I wondered how many of you would refuse saying that you had an arthritic knee. Or young people all of a sudden had to use the bathroom. Do you, do you, do you, do you love to be humiliated? I'm not talking about the perverse person who takes glory and pride in being humble. Right before he died, my father-in-law was asked once what he was most proud about in his life. He was a public figure. And he said, well, a lot of people say I'm humble and I take pride in that. Now, of course, knowing Dad the way I did, I, I know he knew exactly that that, was it, that itself was an act of humiliation on his part. <laughs> In other words, he was even ahead of them. But there are many people who go through life, you know, it's the Jewish mother's story. You know, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? None. I'll just sit here in the dark. You know, there are many people that have that kind of approach to Christian humiliation. Well, it's my cross to bear that I'm a Christian and everybody makes fun of me and abortion's awful and you sodomites and you feminists and you echo-Nazis. Do we really love the glory of Jesus Christ or do we love our own glory? If you think in heaven, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you think about what Scripture tells us about the glory of Jesus Christ, you know that this glory is to be the treasure of your heart as a Christian. You know that. You know that nothing is to be as dear to you as the glory of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, when you go to worship each week, 
Is there anything about your body physically that shows that your knee is bowing? Do you think it's just an accident of composition that there is reference made to a part of the body that does something physical? Do you think that that is meaningless today? Do you think that the pride of modern culture is not connected to the absolute rigidity of our bodies in worship? Do you think that it's an accident of our time that in Africa bodies move in worship and in Africa humiliation is the name of the game? Have you ever thought about that? Don't you think maybe that there's an inverse correlation between the splendor of the surroundings and the rigidity of the body in Christian worship? In other words, do you really expect that in the cathedrals that the bodies will bow? Really, think about this. Don't you think that maybe the expense of the clothing on the person will lead to the rigidity of the body? Have you ever thought about that? Don't you think that the pomposity of the instrumentation accompanying the worship would lead to the rigidity of the body? In other words, think of all the ways that like lace work and needlework and embroidery that we embroider all around the glory of Jesus Christ in such a way that we are left pristine in our pride. Pristine in our pride. And all of a sudden, Christianity is flipped over so that instead of it being taking up your cross and following Him, it actually means promoting your own motherhood by promoting your own daughter, by promoting her career, by her herself not giving herself to the desperate to the, to the lowly work that you gave as a mother to her. How many times I've heard people talk about their mothers wanting them to get ahead, to get a career, to get a profession, to get a master's degree, and not to marry and not to have children until it's all done, so that they never have to submit themselves to the humiliation that they've had as a mother. And I ask you, what does this have to do with Christianity? What does this have to do with Jesus Christ? Therefore, what is the therefore? What does it mean? Because Jesus humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And so today, if we have Christian worship that doesn't require the humiliation of motherhood and doesn't require the humiliation of fatherhood and husbandry, and doesn't require us to serve our wives, and doesn't require us to keep our vows, and doesn't require us to give anything to the church, doesn't require us to be members of a church, doesn't require us to submit to the elders of a church, doesn't require us to submit to the discipline of the elders of the church, doesn't require us to read a version of the Bible that uses the word man instead of the word person. If we have a religion that everything is designed in such a way as to pander to our massive egos in 21st century America, and our white ones... What does this have to do with Jesus Christ? Nothing. 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 Either the gospel is true or the gospel is false. And I want to know from you, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe it? All right, so are you proud of your humiliation in Jesus Christ? Do you have occasion to be humiliated in Jesus Christ? Or have you carefully, surgically removed them from every point in your life? And you say, who are you to ask me that? And I say, come on, people, I'm preaching to myself, for heaven's sakes. Don't you know that? That's elementary in rhetoric. 
Okay? I'm preaching to myself. Do you treasure the glory of Jesus Christ? You know something? The Bible tells us that one day every knee shall bow, and that includes your knee. That includes the knee of your husband. He will be there. And you know, before the judgment seat of God, there will be two categories of people. There will be those whose knees have bowed before Jesus Christ here on earth, and therefore in heaven they do what they've tuned their instrument to do here at the door. And there will be those who have refused to bow the knee before Jesus Christ here on earth. And they will bow, and it will be the bowing of their own judgment and eternal condemnation. And the way you can tell the difference is those who go through life as the Son of Man did with no place to lay their head, who proudly bear the humiliation of the cross of Jesus Christ, who do what Jesus said, which is they deny themselves and they take up their cross daily and they follow Him. And those are the only people who sincerely, who sincerely celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the day of Easter. And I have always thought as a preacher that the best predictor of who those people really are, are you ready for this? The best predictor, because of course a preacher is supposed to be constantly diagnosing his flock. That's what a preacher is. He's a physician of the soul. And so he's constantly diagnosing his flock. And I think the best predictor of those who treasure the cross of Jesus Christ is those who are not here Easter morning, but are here Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday for the service. Because regardless of what everybody says, you know, the high service of the year is not Easter. The high service of the year is Good Friday. When we gather to see the Son of Man lifted high on the cross. Because a soul that knows its sinfulness... A soul that despairs of its own righteousness. A soul that is not filled with self-aggrandizement, with pride, with arrogance. A soul that's humble before God is a soul that hungers and thirsts after righteousness and knows that the only righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that soul looks up to the cross and that soul sees on the cross that God Himself has taken upon Him the form of a servant, has been made in the likeness of man, has been humbled and humbled and humbled until He has humbled Himself even to death, even to the death on a cross. And that soul looks at the cross and says, that's where my hope is. My hope is built on nothing other than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Give me the last verse, Tim, please. When he shall. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. So is Jesus Christ and His glory a very, very, very personal matter with you? Every day when you get up and when you go to sleep, do you think, that's my hope? And when you're humiliated at work and when you have to say no to money 
and pride and status? Do you treasure the cross of Christ and know that one day you too will be glorified because God has said that Jesus is your victor, your champion. He's your general. He's your Stonewall Jackson. And you're content just to be one of the flunkies that dies so that Stonewall Jackson can get the glory. Is that what Jesus is to you? Is that who he is? Well, if that is who he is, then Resurrection Sunday is your day. But I'll rob it of you if you don't love his humiliation and his cross. You can't have Easter if you don't love the humiliation of Jesus Christ. You know whether you love the humiliation of Jesus Christ if you think your highest moments in life are those times when you yourself are humiliated. Okay. You guys know that rock and roll bands fight, right? And you know that the fights are always about principles of composition and rhythm, right? You know, if you've ever played in a, in a quartet, that any conflict is always a function of interpretation of the score, right? Well, no. Not at all. Fights are always about who will be first among them. Right? If you're married, you know that you have that fight at least five times a minute with your wife. Who will be first among them? And this last week, I had heard some rumblings about our band having some struggles as to which of them would be the first among them. And so I exhorted them to be willing to submit to Jody's leadership because, go ahead, stand up, Jody. This is the infamous leader of the band. Thank you. Now, Jody didn't like that to have, have that happen. He'd give anything for that not to happen. He doesn't want more people attacking him. But there, there is such a thing as decreasing that another may increase. You all know this. Now, let me ask you a question as we come to an end. Many of you in your life have had a time when God has called you to take up your cross and to die. You know what I'm talking about. There have been times in your life where you've realized you have a choice between your own glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, for me, when it was... It's been a number of times in my life. Once it was when I gave up the woman I loved as I loved nothing else in my life. I gave her up because I wanted her salvation over my own, if the truth be told, lust and love. Another time was when I took a church. And it turned out that the church was more than I could handle. And... Day after day, I wanted to leave and take another job because I could have gotten a job if I would got out while the getting was good. But the people that I knew loved God kept saying, you may not leave. You have to stay and fight to the end. I didn't want to do it. I knew it would trash my reputation. Now, put this into your life. You know that there have been times in your life where you have chosen the cross of Jesus Christ. Raise your hand. 
Come on. There have been times you have faithfully confessed Christ. Come on, raise your hand. Put it up. If you can't raise your hand now, you didn't raise your hand then. Now, those of you that raised your hand, let me ask you a question. Did he ever fail you? Of all the moments in your life when you come to the end, what will be your greatest glory? The moment that you took up your cross. The moment when, I, as I think of it, I felt like I was paraded naked down College Avenue from top to bottom of Bloomington at that time. I told my wife that. That's how I felt. Now, I was probably being a pansy. But it doesn't matter. You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever regretted taking up your cross for Jesus Christ? And do you think that there will be the tiniest bit of payment of God for taking up your cross that will not be fulfilled when you enter the throne room of God? Do you think there's any sacrifice you've ever made for God that God will not repay? You know what my dad used to say over and over and over again to us kids when we were growing up? He used to say something that I love. He used to say, God is no man's debtor. And so listen, if you glory in your shame, if you glory in the humiliation of the cross, if you love Jesus on the cross, if you were here on Good Friday, if you understand the necessity of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, I want you to know that as God highly exalted Christ, one day you will be in His throne room with Him and His glory will be your glory. In other words... The end has happened. The game is over. The victor has been declared. All the brackets are finished. And now it's just a chance, a time you have to give yourself to the Son of Man and His humiliation. Okay, Jill? Okay? Okay. And brothers and sisters, one final thing, a tender thing. We need to be particularly loving and careful with those who are carrying their crosses. We need to love them tenderly. We need to be Christ to them. We need to give them a picture by our treatment and honoring of them of what they're coming, have coming in heaven. We need to be a particularly tender with those who are humbled in our presence. We don't ever want to be the cause of the embittering of any leading Christian doing.